0: Unabashed. The most unpredictable. Becomes a headline. The most volatile. Outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities.
1: Welcome to Grant Damasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Veshanov. In country after country in South Asia, we are seeing worrying signs of economic turmoil and political upheaval. Earlier this year, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan lost a bruising no-confidence vote, resulting in his abrupt ouster. But now the new coalition government that took over from Khan is struggling under the weight of a rising debt burden. The island nation of Sri Lanka has experienced a full-blown crisis, resulting in Asia's first default in decades and the collapse of the Rajapaksa government. While India's economic prospects remain relatively positive, there too there are concerns about how widely the gains of recent economic growth are being shared. To discuss South Asia's economic outlook, I'm joined today on the show by Benjamin Parkin. Ben is the South Asia correspondent for the Financial Times based in New Delhi. And over the past several months, he's been traveling the region to report on the intense political and economic convulsions unfolding across the subcontinent. I'm pleased to welcome him to the show for the very first time. Ben, thank you for coming on.
0: Thanks very much for having me.
1: So uh, there's a lot to cover in a relatively short period of time, um, but let's just you know start our tour of the region in in Pakistan. Uh, This is something you and your paper have been reporting on quite regularly. As you noted in a recent piece, you know, this coalition government led by the current prime minister, Shabaz Sharif, has spent much of its political capital since day one, trying to put out fires that they sort of blame on Imran Khan. Uh, In recent weeks, the government has revived a long-stalled IMF program, They have reversed populist fuel subsidies that Khan introduced. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the economic legacy they've inherited and what they've tried to do in the short amount of time they've been in power to try to right the ship.
0: Yeah. So they they came to power in in April after uh, the no-confidence vote against Imran Khan and pretty immediately were faced with a series of major challenges, a looming balance of payments crisis, double-digit inflation, and there was the very real prospect that Pakistan could default on its foreign debt at some point in the not-too-distant future. So politically, it was an extremely unenviable position to be in. So there had been an IMF program um, started under Khan, but it had stalled after he introduced some energy subsidies that um, the the fund deemed to be... uh, Uh, unfunded and unsustainable. So for Shari's government, they basically had to choose whether to try and kind of steer the course and maintain the status quo, risking a default or taking steps to restore Pakistan's credibility in the eyes of the IMF, which meant inevitably sharply raising fuel prices, which for a new government coming in at a difficult time is probably one of the least popular things you could do. But they, they did it. They took the political hit And the IMF program has been revived. And by all accounts, it has helped to avert uh, an outright default for the foreseeable future. But the country very much remains beholden to these kind of boom and bust cycles, which have been happening for a long time. They long predate this government. They long predate Imran Khan. So it's it's an extremely uh, volatile situation still.
1: You know, we've seen in recent weeks and months a surprising improvement in the fortunes for Khan and his party, the PTI. Uh, They recently bagged 15 of 20 open seats in the province of Punjab, which, you know, incidentally has long been the stronghold of the Sharif family. So when you talk to investors and kind of people in that community, you know, what does Khan's resurgence mean for Pakistani's economic outlook? How badly are people sort of spooked?
0: Well, I think if there were, most people would say if there were elections held soon, he would probably be the favorite. Um, There isn't a huge amount of reliable polling, but he seems to be really, really resurgent. And from the point of view of investors, you know, he's a populist and he's uh, more unpredictable. Sharif's pitch is all about trying to portray himself as this quote-unquote adult in the room, um, and you know the one who can work with multilateral institutions, the one who can work with foreign investors, work with the US. Khan, on the other hand, you know he's there to shake up the status quo. He's, uh, you know, he blames the US for his ouster. He claims it was a conspiracy. So he's really uh, taking on a lot of these these people very explicitly. Um, so, from an investor point of view, it's it's a sort of less predictable situation, and it does take a, a toll. But that, I mean, that's what Khan. You know, he's not there to maintain the status quo because he argues it has not worked for for the past seventy five years.
1: You know, the country has been dealing not just with. Uh, economic turmoil, political crises, but also, as many of our listeners will know, natural disasters. I mean, Pakistan is reeling thanks to historic flooding that has devastated the country. I think one top minister called it the climate catastrophe of the decade um, and likened it to biblical floods uh, arriving in Pakistan. How, you know, how are the floods impacting Pakistan's already fragile economy?
0: Yeah, they've come at a terrible time and they are pretty biblical. You know, a third of the country at one point was said to be underwater. Millions and millions of people, a significant chunk of the population, have been affected, displaced. Um, And Antonio Gutierrez, the UN Secretary General, who was there last week, has estimated that the damage may be as much as $30 billion worth. So clearly, this is going to require a whole load of assistance and aid from the international community on top of what was already... Uh, required to sort of steady the ship. Um, so I think there will be very long-term consequences that we're yet to fully understand. And it's an ongoing situation as we speak. The floods continue. There are still towns at risk. There are still power plants at risk uh so it's it's really come at a, an extraordinarily bad time
1: you know let me kind of turn your attention further south to sri lanka a few months in the podcast we talked with the guest about the economic crisis in sri lanka that had helped to topple the rajapaksa government we'll link to that in the show notes uh you know in in may after effectively running out of foreign reserves Uh, the country became the first Asian nation to default in more than two decades. Um, And as you know better than most, Sri Lanka has been a victim of global pressures, surge in commodity prices, for instance. But the crisis has also been blamed on chronic economic mismanagement by the Rajapaksa family itself. So when you talk to economists and other sort of keen observers of the country, how do they apportion blame, right? How do we think about whether this was a kind of domestic uh, endogenous crisis, or is this something that was really exogenously driven, or was it some combination of both?
0: It was a combination of both. But I think any serious analysis has to start with the um, the mismanagement and the ways in which it was self inflicted. You know, the government of uh, the now former president Gotabaya Rajapaksa, with the benefit of hindsight, they willfully presided over the decline of. You know, it was a difficult situation to the point of you know complete catastrophe and meltdown. Um, you know, when all signs were pointing towards a major, major crisis, uh, they were you know just denying it and arguing they had a, a plan which they didn't really. And um, uh, and yeah, and this is the you know independent, good faith people who wanted to. Uh, you know, were making suggestions that they weren't listening to. So the Rajapaksa dynasty were in power at the end of the civil war in 2009. Um, got by his brother, Mahinda, who was the president, and embarked on this big infrastructure uh, spending splurge, um, borrowing a lot from private bondholders, from bilateral creditors like China. And uh, a lot of this infrastructure was useful. And if you go to Sri Lanka, you can see they have lots of good infrastructure, but a lot of it was politically motivated uh, and 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 wasted. And, you know, this, there was already talk of debt trouble years ago, um, when Gotabaya came to power in 2019, he immediately cut taxes against the advice of a lot of people, eroded government revenues considerably. And then, of course, COVID came, uh, tourism dried up, businesses dried up. Uh, then the Commodity prices surged after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, so uh, its its foreign reserves are really strained. But all the while, um, the people have been warning about this situation for a long time. And you know, I met with Basil Rajapaksa, another one of the brothers, in January when there was a clearly difficult situation, but it wasn't yet a crisis. He was the finance minister at the time, and he, you know, argued the government had a clear plan to get out of this, which involved you know, tourism picking up, which involved boosting exports. Within a matter of weeks, it was clear there was no chance of that, and the, the government eventually had to reverse course. So I think it's really a story of hubris uh, and mismanagement, but that's not to discount the the international pressures. It's just that they, this was clearly uh, a, 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 a very difficult situation was tipped into a full-blown, meltdown because of the way they, they responded.
1: I, I want to ask you about the current government's plans. The current government is headed by President Renil Wikermasinga, who, you know, is the, sort of the ultimate survivor in, in Tr- Sri Lankan politics. Um, it, this government has said it will raise taxes. It also wants to strengthen social safety schemes, but it's also sought assistance from the IMF you know, what do we know about what this government is willing to do to get the economy on track? You know, you mentioned that in the Pakistan case, the Sharif government has taken a political hit for reversing costly fuel subsidies. Are there signs that uh, this government is willing to do the same in Sri Lanka?
0: Yeah, so so they have to an extent already. I mean, so in uh, just a, a matter of days ago, um uh, Wickramasinghe reached a preliminary agreement with the IMF for a, a loan of um, $2.9 billion, which involved uh, him taking certain steps such as raising taxes and reversing some of the tax cuts that Rajapaksa had introduced. So, um, and I don't think he was ever popular to begin with. I, you know, my my experience of being there and speaking to people is that he was pretty. Uh, viewed pretty negatively across the political spectrum. But in a sense, he was seen as someone with no real, uh, no political future to speak of, and therefore, you know, the kind of right person for the job to just manage uh, this this difficult and painful situation. Um, but a fair amount needs to happen before Sri Lanka gets international aid from the IMF and, and from others. They, most of all, there needs to be a debt restructuring which is expected to be a complicated process. It will involve China, uh, which is Sri Lanka's biggest bilateral creditor, Japan, um, India, sitting down and agreeing some kind of debt relief package along with uh, private market uh, bondholders. And China in particular has historically um, been reluctant to negotiate or renegotiate its debts with uh, countries it lends to. So a lot of people are watching this situation. Just recently in Zambia, interestingly, in July, China um, agreed as part of a committee of credits as a debt relief package. So there is now a roadmap for Sri Lanka, but I think we're looking at a, a very long drawn out uh, recovery process.
1: You know, we don't read about Bangladesh as much in comparison to either Sri Lanka and Pakistan, certainly not compared to India, but... There are warning signs there as well that you've written about. You know, it wasn't that long ago, if we kind of rewind the clock, that we were reading these pans to Bangladesh's relative economic success. You know, uh, how, how many of its low-income peers, including India, could learn from it. Obviously, it is known for its robust export sector driven by its successful garment industry. But uh, as you've noted in a recent piece... All is not well in Dhaka either. The government is looking to the IMF for perhaps four and a half billion dollars, several billion more from other lenders like the World Bank and the ADB. Uh, why the about turn? Right? Why have we seen this country, which is seen to be, you know, an exemplar in some sense, um, all of a sudden um, is seeking help uh, in, a, in a in a in a sort of desperate fashion?
0: Well, firstly, I do think it has to be acknowledged that. Bangladesh is in a considerably better position than the countries we've discussed so far, notwithstanding its challenges. But there are certain common denominators across South Asia, right? So, uh, first and foremost, all of these countries um, are dependent on energy imports and so have been really hard hit by the surge in energy prices over the past uh, six months, six, nine months. Um, uh, You know, in the case of Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, they all have uh, significant uh, foreign currency debt as well. So there are certain reasons why this region um, has been so badly hit in a way that perhaps others who uh, you know are ex- vulnerable in other ways haven't. Um, so in the case of Bangladesh, uh, you know what we see is that, for example, they're facing considerable energy shortages. So now there are blackouts um, across. Uh, across the country um, on a daily basis. You know, when I was there in Dhaka, I visited a factory. A garments factory was supposed to be a sort of model of the Bangladeshi economy, and it was sat there in the dark because they were going through one of their daily blackouts. Um, now, the government's view is that approaching the IMF, it's seeking about four, four and $4.5 billion, dollars, um, was a proactive step that sort of highlighted their responsible management of the country. And I think there is uh, a lot to that. Certainly, if you contrast with Sri Lanka, it's the sort of polar opposite where they waited until there was really no chance. And, you know, people had risen up uh, in in rebellion against the government before taking those kind of steps. Um, The IMF acknowledges Bangladesh isn't in a crisis situation. Um, It's a low risk of debt distress. Its debt-to-GDP ratio is like forty, roughly 40%. Far lower than India, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Pakistan, etc. Um, but uh, it's clearly um, life has become difficult. Inflation is is really hurting people. So they're not immune by any means. However, notwithstanding their economic success, um, they're now at risk of, of some of the same pressures we've seen more in a more extreme fashion in in other countries.
1: Hey, Grant the Masha fans, if you're looking for the latest insight into U.S. foreign policy, my colleague Aaron David Miller hosts former secretaries of state, U.S. ambassadors, White House officials, and the leading journalist on his podcast, Carnegie Connects. Go check out Carnegie Connects wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. You know, just to pause on this for a second, you know, you interviewed an academic who sort of suggested that the recent crisis that Bangladesh is facing has Quote, Expose the story that we hear as a kind of mirage, end quote, which seems rather harsh given the global nature of this crisis that you've just outlined. But you know, with the with the benefit of hindsight, you know, are there significant chinks in the sort of so-called Bangladesh story?
0: Um, yeah, so I think this 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 guy's point, uh, Rashid Al Mamud Titume uh, from Dhaka University, his point was that Bangladesh had this you know, 50 years ago, it had this sort of basket case narrative, right? That was the, Bangladesh was associated with that. I think it was Henry Kissinger perhaps who said that. And now it has this success story narrative and both are far too simplistic. So there have been real gains in terms of poverty reduction, in terms of improvements in living standards in some, by some metrics, it's outpaced India, for example, not to mention some of the other countries, some of its other neighbors. Um, But what COVID has done, what uh, the um, commodity surge has done, and what this recent uh, these recent energy shortages have done is it exposed um, some of the sort of uncomfortable data that wasn't getting as much attention. So the fact that poverty reduction was slowing, the fact that inequality was growing, the fact that its debt has actually risen massively uh, over the past decade, despite remaining uh, at a, a relative level lower than its peers. So... Yeah, Mirage um, was his his interpretation, but I think his point is that uh, it's far far too simplistic to to uh, laud the country as an outright success, which is obviously what the the government uh, wants, and uh, and they feel that the country's success hasn't been acknowledged. Um, but now there is a real risk, not just in Bangladesh but globally, of you know a lot of these gains uh, being undone, and you know the kind of people we think about who have benefited. From Bangladesh's growth remain in a very precarious, vulnerable position, whether they're first or second generation garment workers and so on. And, uh, you know, for them, higher higher fuel prices, higher food prices, that can be the difference between, you know, putting your children through school and not.
1: You know, I was struck by your reporting that uh, Bangladesh's finance minister had sort of publicly warned that Developing countries must think twice about taking more loans through China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, I'm sure that officials in Washington, New Delhi enjoyed hearing that, uh, but they're very worried at the same time that this particular crisis might allow Beijing to flex its regional leverage, not just in Bangladesh, but throughout South Asia. You know, Ben, do we have any signs that the Chinese are preparing to or are, have already swept in to try to uh, sort of present themselves as the sort of saviors or the the, the the magical solution to these ongoing economic problems?
0: Well, let's take um, Sri Lanka, for example. So President mm-hmm. Godavai Rajapaksa asked um, the Chinese foreign minister in January to help restructure its debts. And China basically... Didn't do so, and in essence, it's been until this point not very helpful to Sri Lanka. I mean, they would disagree with that, but India, by contrast, has been a sort of vital provider of aid uh, that has really helped to prop up the economy um, over the past six months or so. So, it's provided around four billion worth of uh, credit lines for uh, for fuel and other things. So, in the case of Sri Lanka, India does really seem to have the upper hand, um, geopolitically, uh, uh, out of this crisis. And, you know, in Bangladesh, for example, Sheikh Hasina visited India, um, uh, a few days ago and, you know, wanted to seek sort of fuel and food assistance. The Chinese foreign minister also visited Dhaka. Um, but, you know, there was relatively little in the way of sort of concrete outcomes. So I think, uh, the narrative uh, in Delhi and, you know, another place in the US and so on that, you know, this is a sort of debt trap policy uh, laid by China. You know, it's highly politicized and it's not taken very seriously if you speak to people in, say, Bangladesh or Sri Lanka. And in fact, they're a lot more cautious, I think, than uh, people looking at it from Delhi might think. So, um, you know, but nonetheless, the, uh, the sort of reputational or the bad publicity, as it were, of what's happened in Sri Lanka and the way in which it's been associated, rightly or wrongly, with Chinese loans. And to be clear, it's a lot more complicated than that. I mean, private creditors are a much larger source of uh, uh, lending to Sri Lanka than, than the Chinese were. But that has had an impact. And so, yes, the, the, the finance minister in Bangladesh told me that uh, you know he would sort of quote, think twice about taking more loans for BRI projects and uh, you know said that it was sort of China's quote responsibility to to you know think harder about how it used its funds in the future now I should add that they uh, subsequently complained about that piece and how I characterized his comments <laughs> and argued that I'd mischaracterized them um, but you can see for yourself in our piece. I mean, what he said. So <laughs> you, you can, uh, and then their and their, their, their letter rejoinder is, is published at the bottom. So you can also read that if you want. <laughs> but uh,
1: you can sort of draw draw your own yeah. conclusions from that. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, I I don't want to give it short shrift, but um, but we would need an entire episode to talk about Afghanistan. So, in the interest of time, let me just ask you about the Taliban's record of economic stewardship. I think uh, most people will know that since the Taliban returned to power in August of last year, Afghanistan has suffered a a dramatic economic uh, collapse. We know, for instance, the economy contracted at least 20 percent last year. We know that international aid has dried up. We know that its foreign currency reserves were, were frozen. But the Taliban, of course, have not stood still amidst this chaos. Um, you've done some very interesting re- uh, reporting lately on what they've been up to. You know, w- what are the steps that they have affirmatively taken to try and reboot the economy? And how well do you think they've panned out?
0: Yeah. So the first thing to acknowledge is that the Taliban, um, or rather, the first thing to acknowledge is that Afghanistan is facing challenges on another order of magnitude from the other countries we've discussed. I mean, it was the poorest country in Asia even before the Taliban took over, and it was getting poorer under the uh, previous native-abanked government. Um, and you know, after, and there was no real you know, economy to speak of, in a sense. It was the government's revenues depended on foreign aid, uh, you know, military spending, and so on. So the whole thing collapsed pretty quickly after the foreign forces left. Um, the foreign aid was cut off, sanctions were imposed, and sort of froze the financial system. So the Taliban's approach has been twofold in a sense. It's economic approach to try and rebuild the economy. One has been to improve relations with the international community, which I guess is a first step towards normalising and and recouping some of those uh, funds that they've lost. Now, you know, for example, India, interestingly, has uh, has taken some meaningful steps towards engaging with the Taliban. They recently sort of restarted activity in um, their embassy in Kabul. They they say they reopened it, but uh, they've sent staff there and are performing some functions. Um, But ultimately, no government has recognized uh, the Taliban until this point. And um, so, you know, things like the Taliban's ban on uh, education for teenage girls makes it pretty difficult for that to happen. So that's not really getting very far, very fast. Uh, The second thing they're doing is basically sort of going back to basics and trying to um, just figure out what does Afghanistan have that other people want and how can we sell it. And basically it's, you know, mineral wealth. Well, so Afghanistan is a a very mineral-rich country, Um, you know, sitting on big reserves of gold, of lithium, of coal, of uh, rare minerals, um, rare earth minerals. Um, it's also a producer of fruits and nuts, and of course opium, but that's a <laughs> different uh, different story um so the taliban's approach has been essentially you know the war is over. this has brought a level of um you know relative security to say roads in the sense that you know you're less likely now to get sort of blown up or shot driving down driving down the road so their goal is to really try and um, uh, remove the sort of Practical obstacles that existed, such as the roadblocks, the checkpoints that the government had maintained, that they had maintained, and they're trying to, you know, they've cracked down on extortion, of which there was a lot, and their goal is to let, you know, trade kind of pick up and um, and you know tax it and sort of slowly rebuild their revenues that way. So the most interesting example is coal, um, because all the countries we've talked about. Uh, have been, as I've said, you know, hurt by high energy prices. Afghanistan, interestingly, sits on quite large reserves of coal, and also has access to subsidised fuel from Iran. So the Taliban have actually been sort of surprise beneficiaries, in a sense, of the um, of the surge in. Well, that might be overstating it, but they've been in, in this, you know, sense at least, they've they've. Uh, They've benefited as exporters. And in Pakistan, where they have a major energy crisis, they desperately need coal. And you know they need to import coal from Indonesia, from South Africa. And so they all of a sudden have this much cheaper source of coal that's much easier to get than it was before uh, from their neighbor. And so exports of coal from Afghanistan to Pakistan are estimated to have doubled. Um, and so for the Taliban, this has been very lucrative and has really helped to prop up uh, their government in an otherwise kind of completely dire scenario. That's not to discount the fact that things remain pretty dire nonetheless, but, um, they have, uh, they've sort of muddled through in a sense, thanks to the high energy prices.
1: So, uh, so Ben, I can't, uh, I can't let you go without asking you to address, uh, India's economic situation, uh, uh, at the risk of provoking you, I want to, to to refer to an article by the New York Times, one of your competitors from a couple of weeks ago, uh, who carried a reported piece that had the headline, from the U.S. to China, major economies are stalling, but not India. Um, and it was a rather positive piece about where India sits relative to other major global economies. Um, you know, to what extent do the headline GDP growth numbers we're seeing out of India which suggests perhaps uh, some sort of rebound, reflect kind of underlining dynamism as opposed to just, you know, look, we started off from a really low base. This is just a base effect, given how hard growth was hit during COVID. Do, you, do we have a sense of, 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 you know, how to think about the numbers we're seeing right now?
0: Well, so first of all, um, India is clearly in a much better position than the other countries we've discussed on this show, in my view. Um, you know, for example, it doesn't have foreign currency debt, right? So it's better placed in in that sense. Um, now, yes, uh, and inflation, you know seven percent is is high, but it's uh, a lot less than what we're seeing in some of the other countries. But um, so yeah, in the most recent quarter, uh, the quarter ending June, um, uh, the GDP grew 13.5%. That was clearly uh, to an extent um, a sort of correction. And some of the you know the low base effect of the previous two years, and the estimates all show uh, growth going falling into single digits for the remaining quarters of the year. But nonetheless, um, there are real uh, drivers uh, of the economy, and you know the economy being relatively large, um, uh, you know having uh, a big domestic market is better insulated from some of these shocks than the other countries we've talked about. Um, And things like you know foreign um, inflows into Indian equities have risen to the highest in a couple of years, uh, so there does seem to be some momentum around the economy and around uh, the formal sector in particular.
1: You know, when you talk to people in India, Ben, you get sort of wildly differing perspectives on the economic outlook. I'm sure you've experienced this. I experienced it when I was there in May. You know, on the one hand. You have a lot of people who are worried about democratic backsliding, uh, you know, investor uncertainty, how that might be uh, significantly harming its economic prospects. But on the other hand, you know, if you talk to people in the private sector, for instance, they're painting a rather rosy picture about the economic outlook. You know, they say, look, the the worst of the twin balance sheet uh, woes are over. Uh, corporates are lining up to ramp up investment, to hire, to expand. Um, You know, how do you adjudicate between these very, very different uh, kind of uh, projections?
0: Well, it's funny, just as a reporter, I mean, I find, you know, if I go and interview someone on the street about just a group of people around the economic situation, I quite often come away with very negative takes on what's happening. (laughs) a lot of people complaining. And then if you go and interview, say, some business leaders, you get a very bullish perspective and um, both obviously reflect to an extent, the biases of those respective groups. I think people probably enjoy venting a little bit to journalists, and the business leaders obviously want to <laughs> drum up some momentum and enthusiasm around their their industries. Um, but I think you know there's, there's, there remains uh, a, a very fundamental divide between the formal and informal economy. So, um, and I think it's it's quite consistent, and we've seen over the past year, particularly. That the formal economy can be going gangbusters while the informal economy sort of languishes but obviously um, the informal sorry the, the formal economy in India has grown considerably thanks in part to government reforms like the GST tax system like uh, to an extent I suppose what you know the the, the trends that, that were accelerated by demonetization. Um, uh, you know things like government policies, like the corporate tax cuts in 2019, like the various manufacturing incentives. Those are, are, are helping um, the formal sector and, and uh, established companies, who are in a pretty sweet spot in many respects. Some of the trends, right, around like diversification away from China. Those are long-term, real trends from which India can uh, can benefit and is benefiting in some ways. Um, but that's all perfectly consistent with the fact that for many Indians, if not the majority of Indians, you know, uh, wages uh, have fallen, um, fell during COVID and have not recovered necessarily. That you know, unemployment uh, remains at um, a, a stubbornly high level. In fact, uh, the unemployment figures for August were the highest in at least a year from the the CMIE think tank. Um, and I don't know that any government has, um, solved the challenge of job creation, which is something you, you, I'm sure know a lot more about than I do, you know, the history of that and how that's, uh, been a, a perennial issue. So, you know, things like, um, you know, the women, women's participation in the workforce just remains sort of shockingly low. Um, so, you know, there are, for some economists, even if India is growing at 7% a year, uh, you know it's not clear that that's enough to sort of create enough jobs for the young population. So it's sort of a paradox, and yeah, you can get two people, you know depending on from which way you look at it, you can come away with a radically different interpretation of the overall health of the the economy and India's prospects.
1: My guest on the show this week is Benjamin Parkin. Ben is the South Asia correspondent for the Financial Times based in New Delhi. He previously reported for the paper from Mumbai. He's also worked with Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal. Ben, thank you for giving us such a detailed tour of an incredibly important but also very complex region and look forward to having you back on the show.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ben for having me. I
1: really enjoyed it. Grant is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nithya Love. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.
0: This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HT Smartcast. HD the smart